Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, that is a deep and profound thought that your grace holds us. That nothing can separate us from your love. The love that is in Christ Jesus, if we are your children, by grace through faith. Father, there's no better place to be reminded of that truth than in your word, in your scriptures that we open this morning. And I pray, our Father, that you would make them come alive in our hearts. May your Holy Spirit be strong in us today to do the work he wants to do. For the sake of your kingdom and in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So last week I cut off the message like three quarters of the way into it. If you were here, you uh, kind of witnessed that little struggle that was going on inside of me at that time. So we're going to finish it up today, but for those of you that weren't here, we're going to do a little recap first. But I want to begin um, with this story, this true story, beginning in 1914. 1914, not long after the sinking of the Titanic, Congress convened a hearing to discern what happened in another nautical tragedy. In January of that year, a thick fog off the Virginia coast, the steamship Monroe was rammed by the merchant vessel Nantucket and eventually sank. Forty-one sailors lost their lives in the frigid waters of the Atlantic. And while it was Osmond Berry, captain of the Nantucket, who was arraigned on charges, in the course of the trial, Captain Edward Johnson was grilled on the stand for over five hours. And during cross-examination, it was learned, as the New York Times reported, that Captain Johnson, quote, navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said the instrument was sufficiently true to run the ship and that it was the custom of masters in the coastwise trade to use such compasses. His steering compass had never been adjusted in the one year he was master of the Monroe. The faulty compass that seemed adequate for navigation eventually proved otherwise. And that tragic realization partly explains a heart-rending picture recorded by the Times which read also, later the two captains met, clasped hands, and sobbed on each other's shoulders. The sobs of these two burly seamen are a moving reminder of the tragic consequences of misorientation. Spiritual drifting has deadly Consequences. I said that the last couple of weeks as we've started in on this series. A couple of weeks ago we began examining this importance of the scriptural command to examine ourselves as to where we are in the journey of faith in Christ. And we used a passage out of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, which says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Now, by obeying the Bible's commands to periodically engage in this discipline of self-examination, we guard against this danger of misorientation, this danger of having your compass off two degrees or eventually ending up with spiritual shipwreck or what we call the term apostasy. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this 
concept of apostasy, the abandonment of Christ and the Christian faith. And right now in this moment, I want to ask you yet again, where are you on your spiritual journey? I suggested to you last time that all of us need to find that red dot in our spiritual lives, as somebody once put it, that you do what you do spiritually, what most people do physically. When you go to a big mall in a city that's unfamiliar, you go to the directory and you find the you are here icon, which is identified by a big red dot. Now, locating that red dot in your spiritual life is the first step in your journey closer to God. And examining ourselves, we uncover this truth about our declaration of faith and the genuineness of our claim to be Christ followers. And we found, according to 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that that's a serious command that is really no option. And it's a serious command with a specific concern to see if you're in the faith or do you not recognize that Christ lives in you. And it also carries with it a sobering consideration, unless indeed you fail the test. And last time we were together, I referenced a handful of critical warnings contained in the book of Hebrews written to people who are occupying that precarious place of sitting on the spiritual fence. And I identified those warnings as the five dangerous Ds. Each of them sound an alarm that alerts people to the dangers of not fully committing themselves to Christ while they still can, while the opportunity is available. If in the process of pinpointing that red dot of your spiritual position, you find that you are perilously teetering on the fence, you need to seriously consider these dangerous Ds. And last time we got through three of them. Here's the recap. The first one, the danger of drifting. The danger of drifting. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews... That one comes out of Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 1 to 4. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How? The writer of Hebrews warns his readers that they need to pay extremely close attention to what they've heard about Christ lest they drift away from it. And that drift, as I said last time, was often a slow, subtle drift. Little by little, you're just falling off course. It's not radical departure. It's a gradual slippage. And you know what it's due to? Remember? Due to what? Neglect. Spiritual neglect. Slow, continued neglect. A compass that is merely two degrees off. Just two degrees. All you have to do to shipwreck, friends, is to simply neglect to check your compass. That's the danger of drifting. Second danger is the danger of distrust. The danger of distrust. That's in chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. 
Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Instead of getting off the fence and entering the rest of the promised land, these Israelites wound up walking in circles for 40 years, right? And we found that when it was all said and done, the desert was littered with their graves. Entire generation lost because of distrust. Decision time, God says, the writer of Hebrews says, is now. That's what the writer warns. Verse 15, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. He's pointing back to Israel and he's telling his readers, don't do the same thing they did. Don't do it. Decision time is now. The longer you put off receiving the gospel of Jesus, the greater the danger of your soul becoming callous to it. Chapter 3 again, verse 14. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see then that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Distrust. That's the bottom line. The only way to enter spiritual rest is to believe in Jesus Christ. To trust in his salvation. He offers it to anyone freely. So are you in danger of drifting? Are you falling into distrust? Verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had the good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered into his rest has himself rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. We have a great high priest, verse 14 says, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. You say that with me? Let us hold fast our confession. Are you holding fast? Are you falling into distrust? Because of your circumstances or whatever it is that is occurring in your life? There's storms possibly? Or maybe it's not storms, maybe it's prosperity. 
More people fall away from the faith during times of prosperity than they do in times of adversity. Well, maybe you're not falling into distrust, maybe not, but there's a third big D to check yourself against, and that is the danger of dullness. That was in chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. The writer says, concerning him, pointing back to his discussion on Melchizedek, we have much to say, and yet it is hard to explain, since you have become, what does it say? Dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, so you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Are you trained to discern good and evil? Are your senses trained for that spiritually? Because dullness hinders our spiritual perception and halts our progress, halts our practice. And the scary thing is that whole churches become like that sometimes, as I said last time. Stuck in that spiritual infancy stage. Listen, if you're bored with your faith, You're probably not using your faith. Hebrews 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary principles and teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Press on. Press on. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. Friends, we must press on to maturity. Spiritual dullness is overcome by spiritual progress. Dullness hints at spiritual apostasy. You're on that trajectory, two degrees off. Dullness is aiming you toward shipwreck. And if you're in that place, the Holy Spirit sounds a deafening, deafening spiritual warning. I almost sought out a seaman or somebody that had that blasting warning horn on a boat, right, that's in distress, so I could play it for you and jump you out of your seats. <laughs> because that's what Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 is. It's a deafening blast of a warning sound. Read it with me. For in the case of those who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. The reality, folks, is if you've gotten this far, if you've got the knowledge of the truth, and have seen and experienced the Holy Spirit at work in people's lives, and then you turn your back on the gospel, there is no place left for you to go. You understand that? The only place left for you to go is to turn back. That means repent. And to turn toward God and run like mad toward God. Like the writer of Hebrews here, I am convinced of better things concerning the church today. Uh, even 
with all of its problems, I'm convinced of better things concerning Christ's church and Christ's people, and I hope for better things. Let me repeat one of the most important statements that I made to you last week, because I don't know if you grasped it or not. I hope you did. It's the reason that I cut the sermon off early last week, because I believe it alters the way that we might approach those who are in danger of turning away from Christianity. I believe that sometimes people who walk away have simply forgotten whose they are and need to be brought back to the reality of their true identity in Christ. And the truth is, we're not our own. Scripture tells us we were bought with a price by Jesus, bought by Jesus Christ and by his blood. We are his. Amen? The value of our lives is not determined by our rank, our heroic action, or our accomplishments. Our value is determined by the one who has marked us with his own blood as his own. You've been freed from your chains? You're just saying about it. Is it true of you? You're marked. You've been set free. Why subject yourself again to a yoke of bondage? Because anything that's away from Christ, two decrees off of Christ is a yoke of bondage. See, we not only can know who we are, but more important, we can know whose we are, and that also helps us to know where we're going. What's our destination? Heaven. And that knowledge keeps us on track. Because if you've got heaven as your goal, and you get two degrees off, you're not seeing it anymore. You're not fixing your eyes on on the author and perfecter of your faith anymore. And you know that. You can feel it in your soul. You can feel it in your heart. You know it in your mind. You know it by your life. Get it back. On track. The vision of heaven, the vision of Christ who is waiting for us in heaven keeps us on track. Amen? Amen. And that's where I left off last time. Friends, we all have a choice. We can snap out of dullness and respond with determination to embrace the love of Christ who bought us. Or we can continue to go our own way. That choice propels us to consider the fourth warning in Hebrews. And that is the danger of disregard. The danger of disregard. Turn in your Bibles, if you're in Hebrews, to chapter 10. Chapter 10, and beginning in verse 26. As I said last week, these warnings begin to get more and more intense, more and more heavy. Twenty-six. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, I mean, we could stop right there and camp right there for the rest of our lives. If we go on sinning, and not just falling into sin accidentally. Notice what it says. Willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. This is pretty intense, isn't it? They used to call this fire and brimstone stuff, right? 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's one heavy-duty warning. And this is probably the most serious of the five warnings because it smacks of an attitude of flat-out rejection, willful rejection, willful rebellion, and not simply rejection, mind you. This is rejection with the full knowledge of the truth. See what it says? If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Listen, you cannot be truly following Christ and simultaneously continuing to live in blatant sin. It's impossible because Christ is going in one direction and sin is completely opposite of that. And if you're in sin continually, you are not following Christ no matter what you think you say or I say. This applies to me too. So I'm just being honest because the world out there is not honest. And too much of the church is not being honest. Paul shocks us into the reality of that fallacy when he says to the Romans in Romans chapter 6 and verse 2, since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, Romans says, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves was, were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. Didn't we just sing that? For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Amen? Amen? Verses 18 and 19. Romans 6 says this, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life, Paul says, because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. Well, John agrees with Paul in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9. John writes, those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life, his seed, is in them or abides in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell those who are children of God and who are children of the devil, anyone who does not live righteously and does not love his other believers, his brother, does not belong to God. These are heavy, heavy verses. Does that mean that you've you got to be perfect 
that you're never going to sin? Well, you know that's not the case. I hope you know that. Because it's impossible for us as human beings to be in that place. Unless, of course, we are walking with Christ consistently moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. And that is what we strive to do. That's called holiness. That's what the Bible calls being sanctified. And we have the Holy Spirit in order to help us to do that. But we still fall into sin, don't we? That's a whole different deal than what John's talking about and what Paul's talking about in Romans. He's saying, if you're willfully practicing sin and turning away from Christ with the knowledge of the truth, and you decide to go in that direction, that's a whole different deal. How can you do that with the Holy Spirit living inside of you? If you don't feel any conviction whatsoever, I'd seriously question whether or not the Holy Spirit's there. I can't make that judgment call. We can't even make it about ourselves. But the Word of God is speaking truth. See, so if you're in that place and believe yourself to be a disciple of Christ, well, you better do a self-check because the willful disregard of what we know to be true is serious, serious business. You don't get to say no to Jesus without suffering the consequences of that choice. You know why? Because he's Lord. You don't get to say no to Lord. Jesus, without reaping something. Back in the days when Romans was written, when Paul wrote that, slavery was a very real thing, right? Slaves did not have the option of telling their master no. They didn't. If they did, they suffered some dire consequences. And this is the context in which Paul is writing. Jesus is Lord of all lords, isn't he? The writer of Hebrews uses some of the strongest language in the New Testament to describe what those who walk away from Christ actually do. Look at it again. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6, it says, They again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. You understand how serious that is? And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, again it says, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Trampled underfoot and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. That's the polar opposite of what we consider Jesus' blood to be, right? It is precious blood. You were bought by the precious blood of Christ, Peter says. Not unclean. And then it says, and has insulted the spirit of grace. Pastor by the name of Eric Davis recently wrote, quote, apostasy is a despicable sin. The act of apostasy proclaims that Jesus deserved to be crucified. His life, death, and resurrection are not worthy of the, the apostate's time. For this they put him to open shame. And the Greek word translated shame in Hebrews 6.6 6 means to cause someone to suffer public disgrace, to openly discredit someone. We hear it all the time on social media, right? Body shaming and this and that shaming and everything's shaming. Nobody's talking about Christ shaming. And what kind of lifestyles do that 
for all this apostasy is an appalling act, he says. Others have spoken on this. D.A. Carson said, failure to believe stems from moral failure to recognize the truth, not from want of evidence, but from willful neglect or distortion of the evidence. John Stott said this, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied, it is a sin to be deplored. This is what apostasy is. Falling into sin is not apostasy. Willfully turning your back on Christ and saying, I don't give a rip about Jesus and his sacrifice anymore. I'm going to live my life the way I want to because it feels good. That's perilously close to apostasy. So please note the condition here in this text. He's talking about deliberate apostasy. In verse 26, we go on sinning willfully. And you know something interesting? That apostates are generally bred inside the church. They are people who have a clear and full understanding of the truth who then flatly and outrightly walk away and reject it. Their rejection of the one and only way of salvation leaves them only one expectation, according to this text. And it's right there, the consequence. Definitive judgment in verses 26, 27, and 31. 27 says, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Verse 31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. There's nothing more heart-wrenching to me than to watch a friend or a family member or anyone for that matter willfully choose to reject the way, the truth, and the life. In essence, to choose hell over Jesus. You know, it hurts. It's, it's painful to witness. There's also nothing more deflating to me than to watch people yawn and close their eyes in the face of God's open invitation to receive the gift of his son. One of the most disturbing acts I've ever witnessed, and I've shared this with some of you before, but happened years and years ago, when I was a new believer, happened as my wife and I were driving back to work after our lunch hour. Actually, I don't even think I was a believer then. As we neared the middle of the Memorial Bridge in Augusta, some of you know what that bridge looks like. They have, they have fences now that go up and curve over, but back in those days, they didn't. It was just a short railing that came up to about here. So we're going back to work after our lunch hour and uh, as we neared the middle of Memorial Bridge in Augusta, a woman climbed up on the railing and jumped. I mean, no hesitation, she just climbed up and jumped. I couldn't believe my eyes. She plunged to her apparent death 150 feet below, landing in the river at low tide. I immediately drove to the fire station at the far end of the bridge and alerted the rescue workers there. Within minutes, they had launched a rescue boat into the water. And amazingly enough, the woman survived it. She didn't die. She was waist deep in the cold waters of the Kennebec. And as I watched this boat draw closer to her, I was literally stunned and paralyzed by what happened next. She literally began running away from the rescuers, 
repeatedly throwing herself into the water, attempting to drown herself, she was deliberately rejecting the only hope of her salvation, a complete disregard for help. And it was the saddest sight I ever saw in my life. That's what I picture whenever I hear people knowingly refuse the offer of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And it happens too, too often. And when people reject such a costly gift, the Bible says that they literally stomp on the face of Christ. That's what it says. They trample him underfoot. God says such a total disregard for life deserves death. And make no mistake about what I'm saying here, every single one of us deserves death. No doubt. Yet through the fact that God loved us enough to pour out his wrath on Jesus instead of us, we can have eternal life. But only through believing in Jesus Christ and receiving him by grace through faith, there is no other way. Now, if you've heard the truths of Scripture preached week after week and you haven't yet made a, a concrete decision for Jesus, the danger, this danger of disregard is a very, very real finger pointing directly at your very real future. And don't put off this decision that you know you need to make today because it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Isaiah chapter 30 in the Old Testament. I just ran across this verse this week and it just astounded me how much it paralleled what we're talking about here. Isaiah chapter 30 in verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place. Burning is his anger and dense is his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation and his tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and to put in the jaws of the peoples the bridle which leads to ruin. It's an interesting passage of scripture talking about judgment upon a nation that rejects, the, rejects God, which leads us into the next D, the last one, and that is the danger of disrespect. See how that parallels what we're about to read in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. In the Old Testament, God spoke through Moses on Mount Sinai. You remember that situation? back in uh, Exodus. And he said to Moses and to the people of Israel, this is my law, heed it. And you'll be right with me. In the New Testament, God spoke on another mount. He spoke on the Mount of Transfiguration, pointing to Jesus, saying, this is my beloved son, 
hear him and you'll be all right. That's Luke chapter 9, verse 35. If the Israelites didn't escape God's judgment when he spoke to them on earth, how will anyone escape God's judgment when he warns us from heaven? That's what the writer's saying here. Again, verse 28, Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, because our God is a consuming fire. I challenge you to chase that phrase down in the scripture. Our God is a consuming fire. This, let me give you just two little images images of that in Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24, beginning in verse 9. Then Moses went up with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. Mark those names, by the way. Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. Note that as well. They saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be pavement of sapphire and clear as the sky itself. And yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God and they ate and drank. Now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there. And I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders he said, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. And then Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. I'll skip to Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 22. Aaron is presenting an offering before the Lord, just as it was commanded. Verse 22 says, And Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Here is the fire. God is a consuming fire. And it's it's the fire of God's acceptance of the offering. The very next verse. Read this. Now Nadab and Abihu. Didn't we just see them? Weren't they just on the mountain of Sinai? Didn't they see God? Didn't they hear his warnings? Look what it says. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. They did it their own way. And what's it say in verse 2? Same thing it says in, back up in verse 24, only with a different result, right? And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. There's the fire of God's judgment. 
It's interesting to me that God is a consuming fire, but he's a consuming fire of acceptance when we do it the right way and judgment when we don't. And there is only one offering that we can give before the Lord. That's ourselves as we are rightly related to Jesus Christ. Our God's a consuming fire, the writer of Hebrews says. Don't mess around with that. In the Old Testament, Aaron's sons who were priests had no respect for what God had revealed as acceptable offerings. And the result, according to Leviticus chapter 10 here, was that fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. In the New Testament, we see similar thing. In Ananias and Sapphira, in Acts chapter 5, because they lied to the Holy Spirit, what happened to them? They dropped dead on the spot. How many of us, let me ask, how many of us would be alive this morning if God had consumed us every time we showed disrespect for him. Thank Jesus Christ as our mediator that doesn't happen. Our only hope, our only means of escape is through the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, who took the full brunt of God's wrath against sin on the cross. It was then when Jesus willingly gave up his spirit and finished the work of salvation on our behalf that God shook the entire world. He did, didn't he? Literally and figuratively. Again, Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 13. Amazing parallel. You who are far away, hear what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with a consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? This is who can live. Verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He will dwell on the heights his refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. And then verse 22. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. That's what it's all about, folks. It's all about Jesus Christ and his salvation. In light of all that's been said here today and for the last three weeks, what is our charge as we go from here? Well, it's simple. In fact, it's written right here in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. And I'm going to read it out of the Good News translation. One of God's means for, for preventing apostasy in each other is our mutual concern for each other. Okay? And here it is. My friends, be careful that none of you have a heart so evil and unbelieving that you will turn away from the living God. Instead, in order that none of you be deceived by sin and become stubborn, you must help one another. How often? Every day as long as the word today in the scripture applies to us. For we are all partners with Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at the beginning.
Listen, friends, the human heart has a continual propensity to drift. And like Captain Johnson's steering compass mentioned at the start of this message, even the slightest 2% drift can produce catastrophic consequences. Our hearts need constant recalibration. We need to be set on the right trajectory. We need a sufficient compass. Do you have that compass? Do you have it? When was the last time you checked its calibration? Do you know who you are spiritually? Do you know where you are spiritually? Do you know whose you are spiritually? Do you know where you're going? Friends, before you and I can ever consider the possibility of going forward with God toward the ultimate destination of heaven, we need to examine ourselves. Find the red dot. Are you on the map? Are you truly in the faith? Because this is not a joke. Today is the day to take these warnings seriously. Let me repeat the advice I gave you a couple of weeks ago. You need to employ the threefold strategy. First, evaluate your spiritual position. Check the compass. Quite possible that you've been drifting away from the faith for some time. If you're drifting, you're heading for shipwreck. Therefore, the next step is in, in force. Drastically change your direction. That's repentance. Turn away from sin, run towards God, move away from distrust, believe what God says about a relationship with his son, and then thirdly, radically change your pace. You know why? Because we don't have all the time in the world. God says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today. You know, a lack of respect for God's incredible grace may not call down fire from heaven today. Not today. But don't be fooled. If you're not in Christ, it will eventually come. So I'm asking you seriously and with all the sincerity that I've got inside of me, please do not leave this place today without truly establishing or rekindling your relationship with Jesus. Because he is your Christ and mine. So align your heart to God's heart recalibrate your mind to the sufficient magnetic compass of Christ and his truth. You know why? Because he is the one that will hold you on course. You can't do it yourself. He's the only one that can do it. So put your entire weight and trust on him.